so what I'm going to do is I'm going to hold off on reading our scripture reading because it's a long section and I'll be honest, it's a long sermon. This one got away from me a little bit. So I apologize if, you know, we're here the rest of the evening. Um, but, but, uh, we'll kind of read the passage as we work through the text. It's a, it's a passage probably that you're fairly familiar with. It's the story of, of Moses at the burning bush. And so, um, so we're going to be kind of looking at that and, and looking at the idea of, of, uh, our, our God who is both transcendent and eminent. Okay. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Again, Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all your, your many uh, blessings. Uh, God, we thank you for the way that you uh, care for your people. We thank you for um, an opportunity to come together and to um, God worship together and to fellowship with each other. God, to be in each other's presence, presence to 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 hear about good news that is going on in each other's lives, to to share concerns about going on what's going on in each other's lives, God to pray for each other. All these things are are blessings um, of a of a nation that that recognizes the importance of of freedom of of belief and freedom of conscience um, and and freedom of worship. And so we thank you for those things. We thank you for. Um, just a chance to um, to to be in a space um, again and and, and to uh, look each other in the face. Um, God, we ask that you would continue to work uh, and and protect and heal in the lives of our people. God, even even now we have we have several members who uh, who have COVID and who are suffering from COVID. We have several people who are who are um, pregnant and are are. God, we ask for blessing and health in, in those things. God, people who are dealing with other health concerns. Um, Father, we pray for each one of those, uh, those individuals and those families that you would comfort and guide and, and, and um, God, that you would heal or keep healthy. Father, every week we want to pray for uh, the gospel in our community going out. We want to pray for churches that are uh, working uh, to, to bring the gospel to, to our community. God, we, we pray for... Um, St. Brendan's Anglican Church, God, and, and our, our friend Doug Floyd, who is, who is the pastor there. God, we pray, um, God, that you would speak through, through his preaching and there, that ministry of that church. God, that you would draw people to yourself there and that you would, um, build up, uh, the people of God, uh, in, in righteousness and in truth. God, help us in all these things, um, to know you truly to worship you rightly, God, and to follow you each day of our lives. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, we'll just jump right in. So you know, obviously, that uh, some of you have the T-shirt that we have uh, Grover on some of our T-shirts, right? Because it's uh, we're the Pleasant Grovers. And so um, how many of y'all, like, uh, were, were watched uh, Sesame Street growing up? That was a staple in your house for a lot of you, right? So you remember... Probably, and, and I'm, I've mentioned this before, I think, the Grover had a skit where he had this thing that was near and far. Do you remember that skit? And, and the whole bit was he sort of moved way far away from the camera, and he said far, and then he ran up to the camera, and he said near. And, and it was just this thing to kind of teach kids about nearness and farness, okay? Well, we have sort of theological terms for near and far, and those would be the words transcendent and imminent. Transcendent means farness, but it's also about bigness. It's about otherness. So we tie in the idea of holiness to that transcendence, right? But then there's also this idea of imminence, nearness to us, 
closeness to us, intimacy with us. And so once I was, I was listening to uh, some of you were probably familiar with, with the theologian R.C. Sproul. He was asked the question, which one is more important, which one is more central, foundational to the character of God? Is it his transcendent holiness or is it his imminent love? Which one of those is more central to the character of God? R.C. Sproul had an answer for that. I think other people who were speaking at the same time had an answer for it. But that's the question, in a sense, I want to ask today. Is Which one of those is more significant? God's transcendent holiness or his imminent close love for his people? We get a picture of both of them in this passage. And so, again, this story is probably one of the well, most well-known uh, passages in Scripture. The burning bush is, is one of the, the places in the Bible where we see God's self-revelation in a, in a pretty specific way. Um, and a big part of that revelation revolves around this one little phrase that God says is what he is to be known as, that his, this is his name that he is to be called. When God is asked that name, God says, I am that I am. All right, so we probably, again, if you've read the story recently, you probably remember that. So kind of think about that as a picture of, or I want to at least present it as a picture of God's transcendence. That God would say when he describes himself, he would say, who am I? Well, I am, I am that I am. Think about as we read the scriptures, how often throughout the Bible, God describes himself not that way, but by analogy. So what I mean by that is God uses concepts that we know and he compares himself to those things to try to explain who he is at some level. That's often how God describes himself. So, for example, the Bible calls God a lion or the morning star or a fountain or a hiding place or a shield. Okay, you can you can probably think of a hundred different examples. It gives him human roles sometimes. God is called the bridegroom or king or judge, or shepherd, or physician. He is talked about in terms of physical attributes, even though God is spirit. He sees things. He hears. He walks. He sits. He rises. He wipes away tears. All of that is something that's called anthropomorphic language. Okay? Anthropomorphic language. Anthro, like man, morph in the form of. So it literally means what it sounds like it means. It means it takes on a human shape. The language we use about God takes on a human shape. Okay? And so so we do that because it's the only way for us to understand God as humans. And certainly those things are true about God because he's the one who told us those things. He is the one who has called himself those things. He is the one who has put himself in those roles. He is the one who uses those ideas to describe his action. But we have to realize also that at the same time, when we use those kind of things, there's a danger there. Because first, the danger is that God isn't really any of those things, right? He, he doesn't do them actually, at least in the way that we think about them. He is much bigger than those concepts, right? He is, he is larger and more incomprehensible than any of those things. He is like a king, but man, he is so much more than a king. Uh, he is like a physician, but he is so much more than a physician. And moreover, not only is he bigger than them, but pro the problem is, is that our perception of all those things can be wonky. 
So obviously, for example, something that we say all the time, if you had an awful father, a father who's abusive, a father who is absent, and then you were told that God is your father, because of your own baggage, you're maybe going to have a hang-up there, right? You're going to misunderstand what is meant by the fact that God is father based on your own earthly understanding of fatherhood. And so we recognize that most of the time when we talk about God, we're using analogies. However, part of the way that God reveals himself in this passage is not anthropomorphic. It's not making it an analogy for who God is with something else. When Moses says, what am I supposed to call, when I go to Israel, I mean, when I go to Egypt and tell the Israelites and tell Pharaoh to let my people go, and they say, what God sent you to do this, what am I supposed to say? God does not speak in an anthropomorphic way. He doesn't say, well, tell them that the the, the king, or at least he does it first, that the king or the physician or the judge has sent you. Instead, he gives Moses this name. And again, I would argue that this name accentuates the transcendence of who God is and how he transcends any of those analogies that we might try to ascribe to him. So verse 14, it says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you, has sent me to you. Okay, so that phrase, I am, I am, is the, I am that I am, is the translation of the name of God that we say as Yahweh. It is those four letters, Y-H-W-H. Okay, that's called, uh, the tetragrammaton. Again, a word that you know what it means by just looking at the pieces. Tetra, four, gramma, grammar, word. It's the, it's the four letter word, which makes it sound a little bit weird to say it that way. Um, right? But it's, it's the four letter word. The word. It is God's name. His name is Yahweh. His name means I am that I am. The Jews considered that name so holy, and we've talked about this before, that they wouldn't even say it. Even though it came up in the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, over or, or somewhere in the range of 7,000 times, as they read the scriptures, if they came to the word Yahweh, they would not say the word because they were like, it's too holy. That's God's name. I don't want to take the chance of using God's name in vain. I won't even say the name. And so we've talked about how they added some letters and changed it into a word that is a sort of a, a stand-in word for it that, has been Latinized that we call Jehovah. And so that's the word that we say. That's not exactly how they would say it. But, but the, 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 the case is, is that consider what God giving his name as the name Yahweh at this point um, indicates, implies. When Moses asked, who should I say sent me? God does not say, tell him that the king God sent you, or the Father God sent you, or the Shepherd God sent you, or even the Creator God sent you. None of those are used. Moses wants a descriptor of who God is. But the answer that God gives him is kind of the opposite of a descriptor. He's like, God, I need a, a name, an analogy. I need some sort of characteristic that I can go back to the people and say, he's this God who has sent me. But what does God say? He says, 
I am. I am that I am. I am what I am. There are no analogies in this case because no analogy does God justice fully. He is totally above that, totally beyond comparison, essentially. Independent, distinct, set apart, holy, infinite in being, in attributes. All descriptions that we find in the scriptures, they're true of God, but they're only a hint of who he is, right? They are, they are accurate, but they're not sufficient, you could say. They're not the whole picture, or they are sufficient, uh, because they're what he's given us, but they're not exhaustive. Because God just is. How would you describe yourself if you were different from everything that had ever existed? Because we've talked about it before, there are only two kinds of things in this universe. There is God and everything else, right? There's only two things in this universe. Everything in the universe is contingent. Everything in the universe is dependent. On something. Everything. And here's the deal. That reality is what is at stake in our culture right now. That's what all the arguments are actually over, even though nobody is saying it in that way. When we talk about sexuality, when we talk about identity, freedom, equity, when we talk about the right to life, or when we talk about people talk about the right to die, every single one of those arguments is about autonomy. It's about whether or not I have a right to define my own reality and to live according to my own terms. But here's the problem. You did not have. You have not had. You will never have. You could never have autonomy. You can't be independent. You will always be contingent in every aspect of your life, like every animal and atom in this universe, like every star and planet, like every angel and demon, like matter and energy and space and all of it. You are contingent, but not God. God is independent. God is set apart. God is holy. He is Yahweh. He is that he is. And so God says, when the Israelites ask who sent you, Moses, you tell them the God who is sent you. Now, here's something to think about. How do you respond to a God like that? How do you interact with something that is totally other. Well, Moses does a pretty good job of it, I think, actually. He responds the way that, that is, is appropriate. In verse 5, God says, Don't come near me. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And then in verse 6, it says, And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. 
Folks, here's the deal. The only response to a transcendent God is fear. The prophet Isaiah, a passage we talk about all the time in here, when he saw a vision of God seated on his throne, he did not erupt into like ecstatic praise and be like, I'm so glad to be here. What did he say? He said, woe is me, for I am ruined when he saw the glory of God. That's what it means for God to be transcendent, holy, other, exalted. And here's the thing. If that were all we knew about our God, then in in a lot of ways, he wouldn't be much different than other conceptions of God in other cultures. Transcendence is is a religious idea that's pretty common in the world. Hinduism presents an impersonable force that is the essence of all being, right? Everything is God and God is everything. And it is this massive, incomprehensible everything beyond any label, beyond any analogy. Islam teaches that there is a transcendent Allah at the center of everything who is also above creation, beyond creation. But here's the deal. That's not all we learn about God in this passage. Even though maybe it's the thing that our attention is drawn to, that I am statement, it's not all that we learn about God. There's a fuller picture of who this Yahweh is as we look at the rest of the passage, and it's mind-boggling. It's incredible what the implications are. And it's directly connected to the passage that we see at the very beginning of our text. Exodus chapter 2, verse 24. The word covenant. Verse 24 says, And God heard their groaning. That's the people of Israel in slavery in Egypt. He heard their groaning, and then what? He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. He saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So God hears the groaning of this specific, particular ethnic people group, the Jewish Israelite people, a group of people who have been, at this point, in slavery in the nation of Egypt for about 400 years, an oppressed people. Now, here's the deal, though. Why does God notice? There are people suffering all over the world, I'm sure, at that point in human history and all throughout human history. Why does God hear those people in in particular and pay attention? Well, it's certainly true that God cares about all of his creation, right? God cares about all peoples everywhere and the suffering that they are in. But he particularly cares about this people because he has a unique relationship with this people, a relationship that he does not share with any other group of people on the planet or any other thing for that matter, as far as we know, in the universe. God is in covenant with this people. So what's a covenant? It's a word that we don't use a whole lot anymore. If you've been in the church for a while, you've probably heard that word thrown around. A covenant was sort of an ancient, in, in the ancient world, it was, it was similar to a contract or a treaty or even maybe something like a will that we would have. We still today talk about marriage being a covenant. It is a binding kind of agreement between parties. 
And each covenant has established uh, an established basis for the relationship. It has conditions for that relationship. It has promises for that relationship. And it has consequences if the conditions of that relationship are not met. All those things. This covenant that God had with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob is found in Genesis chapter 12. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what you find is that if you read through the scriptures, there are all kinds of pieces, um, conditions, promises, consequences, especially in the book of Deuteronomy and places like that, that we find for this covenant with God. And God says, I expect you to live by these rules. And if you live by them, I'll bless you. And if you, if you don't live by them, there will be punishment for that. There will be judgment for that. But here's something that we misunderstand sometimes. Because the Israelites break the covenant. They don't live up to the rules of the covenant. But here's what's key. The punishment inevitably comes. But the, the distinction is, is this, and we misunderstand this. In the punishment, God is not rejecting his people. Okay, The punishment is part of the deal. It's part of the covenant. It's part of the promises of the covenant. God says, I'm entering into a relationship with you, and I promise you that I will bless you if you do right, and I will curse you if you do wrong. But he doesn't say, I will bless you if you do right, and I'll kick you to the curb and find somebody else if you do wrong. That's not what the picture is. God says, I am going to stay in this relationship. And yes, there will be consequences for disobedience, but that doesn't mean the relationship breaks. Why? Because God is the one who is committed to the covenant. Do you remember back when we talked about Abraham back last winter? And we talked about Abraham making the covenant with God, and the covenant is ratified in this weird ceremony vision thing where Abraham falls into a deep sleep, and in the vision he sees an animal that has been sliced right down the middle long ways and laid open in two pieces. And that was a traditional way of making a covenant with somebody. And the picture is both parties walk through the center. And the idea is saying, hey, you see this slaughtered animal on both sides? This is what happens to people who break the covenant. Except what happens in the vision? Moses doesn't walk through. Only God walks through. God walks through the center of the animal. Indicating what? That God is saying, I will keep the covenant. I will pay the price even for the breaking of the covenant. Because this is what I have promised to do. God lives up to what he promised, specifically by blessing when he, they are obedient and cursing or giving or judging when they disobey. But just like he promised, he never ceases to be in covenant relationship with his people. God has united himself to this particular people. He has made a promise to be their God. And that covenant is marked by a particular care and concern that he has never forgotten about, even in the 400 years that they have been in slavery. And so you notice the language. What does God say he's doing in this thing? The first off is that his covenant relationship has seen their suffering. He knows their suffering. Verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their suffering. You see, the problem is, is that, that when we talk about transcendence, a lot of times it seems like it doesn't leave any room for intimate knowledge and love and care. How could a God 
that is so big care about the suffering of a human? Do you care about the suffering of an ant? Do you even know the suffering of an ant? What does an ant go through on a daily basis? Okay. You have no idea and it couldn't, you, you couldn't care less, right? If God is so much bigger than us, how could he ever actually care about us? In all honesty, that's basically what Islam says at its core is that there's no way that Allah could actually care about you because you're nothing. You should be obedient because you're part of his creation. You have to follow him because he's so much bigger than you. But there's not really any way that he could actually love you because he is a transcendent God. But Christianity says something very different. God sees and hears and knows. You've probably heard this before. That word knows is sometimes used in the Bible for uh, sexual union. Right. When it talks about Adam knew his wife and they conceived a child. Right. What does that mean? When God knows something, it's saying I have intimate knowledge of this. This is not something that I know because I, I have an idea about. I understand it on a deep level. What is going on with my people, the suffering that they are going through. And notice all three of his knowledge about us is connected to our suffering. I know they're suffering. God is not oblivious to those things. He's not obtuse about our suffering, especially when it comes to his people. God knows his covenant people. And he will act. And that's the next thing we see about how he treats his covenant people. Verse 8, I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. God's covenant care includes the protection of his people against the wicked. He will act on their behalf to protect them and bring them to safety and their oppressors to justice. Verse 20 says, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. What do you think that means? You think it's a good thing to get struck by God? A lot of people will say, wait, 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 Ash, doesn't God love Egypt too? Doesn't he love all of his creation? And the answer is he does in a way but he has particular concern for his covenant people. And people who live in opposition to that covenant people, he will bring judgment upon. And then lastly, his covenant love will provide for those people. What does he say in the second half of verse 8? I will bring them out of that land and to a land, a, a good land and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then notice, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. God will provide for his covenant people. He will give them blessing and goodness. But notice, it's at the expense of another group of people. You might say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Did God just arbitrarily pick one group of people to, to lose their stuff? And the answer is no. While in Israel has been languishing and suffering for 400 years, the people of Canaan have been living in wickedness. And God even says they have been storing up wrath for themselves. And so in God's timing, he brings that wrath on their heads. It's not arbitrary. It's not, it's not, he doesn't do it as, a, as an accident. He takes from the wicked and gives to his people. And notice that I didn't say he gives to the righteous. I didn't, he didn't take from the wicked and give to the righteous because they're not always righteous either, but they are his people. They are his covenant people, and he fierce, is fiercely committed to the covenant that he has made with his people. 
And so the picture that we have of God in this passage reveals to us that that initial question that we started about with, which one of these is more important, God's love or his transcendence, his holiness, um, or his care for us? Those two things aren't enemies, right? His transcendence and his eminence, his love and his holiness aren't in competition with each other. God is both near and he is far. And interestingly, think about the added image of just the name that he gives us, the covenant name. Okay, so there's this word in Hebrew for God that is Elohim. Elohim is the generic word for God. So sometimes it's used of other gods and other religions and stuff like that. But it is also used of of the one true God. But here's the deal. When God says, I'm going to tell you what my name is, He, the intimate covenantal name that only the people of Israel have, what is that name? It's the most transcendent name that he could give, right? Isn't that interesting that he would say the secret name that you get only because you're my special people is the name that demonstrates me to be the transcendent one. I intimately give it to you, and yet it declares who I am in in the most transcendent way. There's an incredible statement at the end of this passage that sums it all up. It brings it all together in verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to my people Israel, the Lord, translated, that's Yahweh, that Lord word is Yahweh, the Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Do you realize the incredible statement that is in that? What's incredible is this, that God identifies himself now by and with his people. Okay, so it's one thing for God to say, I am Yahweh. I am the transcendent I am. But God has done something incredible here. The transcendent God of the universe now says, I am Yahweh the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I'm Yahweh, the God of three specks that live on a slightly larger speck floating through an infinite universe. God associates his own name with his people. And then he says, forever and always, for all generations from now on, My name is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I said to somebody this week, I was like, I was trying to think of a way that it, that it, a a superficial way of explaining it. And I said, you know what? There's, there's times in my life where I am not Ash Bramblett. I am introduced as Christie's husband. Okay. That happens all the time. Hey, this is Christie's husband. And then like they don't bother saying his name's Ash. They just, we just go about our business, right? This guy over here, that's Christie's husband. And I'm like, cool. All the time, a child, young people will say, oh, that's India's dad. That's Alice's dad. That's James's dad. Especially little kids will sometimes even say that. They'll say, James's dad, will you, can we, whatever, right? My life is associated with those four people, right? It doesn't even bother me that I'm Christie's husband. Uh, It doesn't bother me that people say that and introduce me that way. 
It doesn't bother me that a child would go, that is India's dad. That's Alice's dad. That's James's dad. You want to know why? Because I have so connected my life to those four people that it is my people. It is my name. I am Ash Bramble, the husband of Christy, the father of Ash. I mean, the father of, of India and Alice and James. That's who I am because I have entered into a, a covenant with those people. God has shown himself to be that God, the Yahweh of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Yahweh of their descendants, and the Yahweh of anyone who is grafted into the tree of the people of God. And guess what? That eminence and transcendence, he just keeps on making it progressively more clear. He keeps on showing the different ways that those things come together. First, he steps down from his transcendence and takes on human flesh. And in the person of Jesus Christ, he identifies completely with the suffering of his people, with their plight. He sees and he hears and he intimately knows the suffering of his people. And in another act of covenantal love and care, another act of associating with his people, he places your sin, my sin, our sin on his own self. He literally becomes our sin on the cross. He becomes the perfect substitute. He becomes the person that we always should have been. And he pays the price that we owed that we could have never borne ourselves. Jesus says, what do we say every time? This is the covenant in my blood. This is the new covenant. This is the new thing that makes you part of my covenant people. And that is my death and resurrection, my shed blood on your behalf. You're trusting in that by faith and repentance. And man, another connection, what is faith and repentance except right response to the transcendence and eminence of God? When we see God's holiness, you know what we say? You're right, God, and I'm wrong. You're good, I'm evil. You're the king, I'm the servant. That's how we respond to God's transcendence and repentance. But then what else do we do? We respond to his eminence. We look to his love that Jesus has lived a perfect life in our place and died a perfect death in our place. I believe in him. I trust him. He is the bridegroom. I am the bride. He is God, his father, Christ, his brother. We are children of his family. We see the intimate love of God there. We respond to it in faith. Guess what? That transcendence plays another role. God steps down and does what? At Pentecost, last week, the transcendent God of the universe comes to earth and enters us, lives inside of us, steps into our life and walks with us every single second of every single day as believers. He indwells us. He associates with us. He guides and grows and nurtures in the grace and knowledge of God. And then guess what? One day, the Bible teaches that in, in, in John's revelation, that the dwelling place of God is once again going to be with man. The transcendent God is going to become imminent. He is going to step down into our world. He will dwell with us. And the Bible says they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. What's the connection again? Going back to that suffering, right? The, the context of the whole passage is God saying, 
I'll come back and I'm going to come back and fix the suffering. Like I've been doing the whole time in every single one of the stories. Death shall be no more. And there shall be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For the former things will have passed away. Right, so that's this picture that we see throughout all the scriptures. I think it's a way, we talk about a biblical theology, a way of, of, of picking a narrative thread that runs through the whole text of scripture. I mean, we could take this passage, we could take these ideas and say, this transcendent and eminent God and show how everything in the Bible, everything in life and existence and faith and spirituality and everything, everything comes back to those two issues of us responding to the one true God who is both near and who is far. Does that make sense? Um, I'm not exactly sure what to do with that. I'm not actually sure where to take it next, other than to just dwell on these things, because the reality is, is this is the God who we follow. We've talked about it before, about how probably every single one of us in here struggles with one of those two ideas about God. If you're like me, you are a, a person who gets better the transcendence of God and struggles with the love of God. I like the rules. I like the military. I like the, I like the uh, authority side of the story, right? I get that. I get a God who says, do this this way. I get it. The loving fatherly side of the equation, I have a harder time with that sometimes. But I guarantee there are some of you in here who are the exact opposite, right? You get the loving, caring, nurturing side of God. You lean into that all the time. Sometimes you lean into it, but also away from it because you go, it's okay for me to live how I want to live because God's just this loving grandpa who's going to come back and just give me a hug and maybe some Werther's Originals out of his pocket or something like that, right? The reality is, is we have to have a God who is both of those things. We have to live in light of those realities every day. Live in light of the reality that God is Father and God is Creator King. At the same time, he is both of those. So maybe that's something that that is is just something for us to be aware of in our own spiritualities as we as we seek after God to know that man I'm probably I probably lean towards one side. And while it's good to acknowledge the truths there, that I should also recognize the truths that are on the other side. Also, we would have to say that if you don't know these things, if you have not received the transcendent God, the eminent God, the God of love and God of holiness, if you have not entered into covenant relationship with him through Jesus Christ, then what are you waiting on? He has offered it. The benefit to it is obvious in his care and concern for us. Why would you wait any longer? He has invited you into that relationship. Why wouldn't you take advantage of it? Why wouldn't you step in and say, I want to be one of your people, God? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, you are gracious and good. God, you are holy and exalted. God, everything about you is, is majestic and infinite and almighty. 
But God, you have come to us at the same time in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. God, you indwell us with your own spirit. You walk with us on a daily basis. God, help us to experience, to know, to live in light of both of those truths and everything that we do. God, as we talk about living righteously, as we talk about living in holiness, God, we acknowledge that, that we are awful at that, that we do a poor job of it, and yet we recognize that it is what is, is the proper response to not only your character, God, but to the way that you have saved us by the gospel. God, help us to hold fast to the truth of your holiness. But Father, at the same time, help us to hold true and hold fast to your great love and mercy for us. God, that, that you knew who we are before you entered into the cup with us. God, that you did not even ask of Moses to walk through because you already knew that he was incapable of doing it on his own, that he was incapable of living up to the covenant. But God, you entered into covenant with us anyway. God, you sent your own son into the world to shed his blood to, to be the foundation of the new covenant. God, help us to honor that great love, to receive it. Um, God, to know the love and mercy that you have um, for those who have turned to you. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song.
Amen. Good to see you. Glad you're here this weekend. Um, hope you have have had a great weekend already. Uh, time to enjoy with friends and family. Hope hope you don't have to work tomorrow, um, but some of you probably do have to work. So sorry. Uh, but for those of you who don't, uh, have a great day. Um, I think weather's supposed to be pretty good. It's supposed to be a pretty nice day, and so so uh, hope you get to enjoy that with with friends and family. Um, hear this benediction as you depart. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.